A note to my podcast feed listeners, what you're about to hear is another episode from the new series I've been working on called Short Reads. Short Reads is basically just me reading a passage from a work of philosophical literature and then offering a few brief insights into the text afterward to help you think about the text and to find ways to apply the concepts in your own life. These episodes are released weekly, and as an Anchor podcast listener, I encourage you to keep listening as long as you like them. If you're finding the series especially enjoyable, I'd like to invite you to head on over to my Locals community page at exitingthecave.locals.com, where you can become a subscriber. A $3 subscription will give you early access to these episodes, as well as to my videos, to my philosophical musings in essay form, and especially to a community of other like-minded listeners where you can discuss these podcasts or any other philosophical topics you find compelling. I'm looking forward to meeting you over there. Now, on with the show. Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of Exiting the Cave Short Reads, The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. This week we're doing Book 2, Chapter 3, and in this episode, philosophy prepares Boethius for the hard road ahead by reminding him of the full scope of fortune's blessings. Boethius is chastised for his excessive self-regard and given a fresh set of reasons for eschewing his morbid despair. Let's see what philosophy has to tell him, shall we? If fortune should plead thus against thee, assuredly thou wouldst not have one word to offer in reply, or if thou canst find any justification of thy complainings, Thou must show what it is. I will give thee space to speak. Then I said, Verily thy pleas are plausible, yea, steeped in the honeyed sweetness of music and rhetoric. But their charm lasts only while they are sounding in the ear. The sense of his misfortunes lies deeper in the heart of the wretched. So when the sound ceases to vibrate upon the air, the heart's indwelling sorrow is felt with renewed bitterness. Then she said, It is indeed as thou sayest, for we have not yet come to the curing of thy sickness, as yet these are but lentives conducive to the treatment of a malady hitherto obstinate. The remedies which go deep I will apply in due season. Nevertheless, to deprecate thy determination to be thought wretched, I ask thee, Hast thou forgotten the extent and bounds of thy felicity? I say nothing of how, when orphaned and desolate, thou wast taken into the care of illustrious men, how thou wast chosen for alliance with the highest in the state, and even before thou wert bound to their house by marriage, wert already dear to their love, which is the most precious of all ties. Did not all pronounce thee most happy in the virtues of thy wife, the splendid honors of her father, and the blessing of male issue? I pass over, for I care not to speak of blessings in which others also have shared, the distinctions often denied to age which thou enjoyest in thy youth. 
I choose rather to come to the unparalleled culmination of thy good fortune. If the fruition of any earthly success has weighed in the scale of happiness, can the memory of that splendor be swept away by any rising flood of troubles? That day when thou didst see thy two sons ride forth from the home joint councils, followed by a train of senators, and welcomed by the good will of the people, when these two sat in curial chairs in the Senate House, and thou by the panegyric of the king didst earn the fame of eloquence and ability, when in the circus seated between the two consuls, Thou didst glut the multitude thronging around with the triumphal largesses for which they looked. Methinks thou didst cozen fortune while she caressed thee and made thee her darling. Thou didst bear off a boon which she never before granted to any private person. Art thou then minded to cast up a reckoning with fortune? Now for the first time she has turned a jealous glance upon thee. If thou compare the extent and bounds of thy blessings and misfortunes, thou canst not deny that thou art still fortunate. Or if thou esteem not thyself favored by fortune, in that thy then-seeming prosperity hath departed, deem not thyself wretched, since what thou now believest to be calamitous passeth also. What? Art thou but now come suddenly and a stranger to the scene of this life? Thinkest thou there is any stability in human affairs when man himself vanishes away in the swift course of time? It is true that there is little trust that the gifts of chance will abide. Yet the last day of life is in a manner the death of all remaining fortune. What difference then, thinkest thou, is there? whether you leavest her by dying, or she leave thee by fleeing away. When, in rosy chariot drawn, Phoebus gins to light the dawn by his flaming beams assailed, every glimmering star is paled. When the grove, by zephyrs fed, with rose blossom blushes red. Doth rude austere breathe thereon, bare it stands its glory gone. Smooth and tranquil lies the deep, while the winds are hushed in sleep. Soon, when angry tempests lash, wild and high the billows dash. Thus if nature's changing face holds not still a moment's space, Fleeting deem man's fortunes, deem bliss as transient as a dream. One law only standeth fast, things created may not last. Welcome back, and I hope that wasn't too depressing. And it is fair to say that in one sense, philosophy does seem to be counseling despair by way of this lecture. To put it succinctly in the words of John Maynard Keynes, in the long run, we're all dead. She makes the implicit case that the transitory nature of fortune's gifts is a direct reflection of the transitory nature of man's life itself. 
But it would be a mistake to interpret this as merely a call to nihilism. Rather, the point is to emphasize to Boethius the fact that the happiness he seeks, if he seeks true happiness, cannot be found by scratching it out of the earth or extracting it from our neighbors. But even if we are to take the transitory gifts as blessings, then surely, philosophy counsels, the fortune of oneself is pointless if it is not shared with, indeed amplified in, those we love. Philosophy's argument is one condemning the narrow-mindedness of Boethius' self-pity and the rank selfishness with which he bemoans his own losses, disregarding the legacy he's left to his wife and sons. In the end, this chapter is not so much a strict formal argument, so much as a meditation on what matters in life and the attitude we ought to take toward those things. If Boethius thinks the souls of his wife and children are what makes him a success, then why should he regard his present state awaiting execution as a failure or a loss of any kind? This constitutes the last of philosophy's stoic arguments. In the coming weeks, philosophy will graduate Boethius to Aristotle to round out the final chapters of Book 2. The Stoic case was necessary to make this next step because Boethius needs to set aside his purely earthly concerns in order to reorient himself on the summum bonum, a.k.a. eudaimonia. But even this is not a complete picture, as we'll see in due course. By the height of Book 3, we will all be carried along with Boethius to the contemplation of the form of the good itself and finally to the divine mind. But we're getting ahead of ourselves once again, so stay tuned for more next week.